Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifert, joining you tonight from Missoula, Montana, where I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. This is episode number 77 of the EdTech Situation Room. It's December 13th, 2017. And joining me as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you? Good evening. I'm happy to be joining and looking forward to two more days of school where we'll be we'll be out for a couple weeks and then back on January 2nd. So it'll be a bit of a of a quicker return after New Year's. But I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School and we got out to do a little bit of uh, Christmas shopping and I had my first Microsoft VR experience. I had to uh, pick up something at the Microsoft store tonight and uh, they had this, um, well, it's, it's a new headset. It was, they said it was today only $200. I was like, are you serious? Um, but you know, had both of the paddles that were kind of like lasers and the coolest thing was a GoPro um, uh, like skiing experience where you'd been hella ski dropped at the top of a mountain, you know, going down. But then the space pirate game was pretty cool too. So anyway, you don't catch me that often coming off of a cool Microsoft experience. So yeah, shout out to the VR uh, creativity of uh, the Microsoft world. Yep, and in fact, I looked at that same um, uh, augmented reality uh, headset at ISTE this past year, and it didn't fit super great on my head, um, which did cause a little bit of pain. And part of it's because, um, if it's not you know painfully obvious from the podcast, uh, I have a large nugget, and so I struggle to find things like hats that fit. But um, you know, I did was very impressed with the fact that it did seem very realistic that there was uh, items in front of me um, on tables, and I, I did like the idea that I could go. 360 around objects and they set up a virtual museum at ISTE that was pretty interesting and um, especially as the hardware comes down in price increase in, in function and then also teachers have some time to figure out where it fits in a modern responsive classroom I think there's some cool stuff there yeah definitely so, Wes, why don't you tell us what we're all about, or I guess right. tell the viewers or listeners what we're all about. Well, we are breaking down the previous week's technology news with an educational lens, and we generally have a long list of links that you can access on edtechsr.com slash links. We have a running Google Doc, which I guess maybe at some point we'll choose to migrate over, but we have 77 episodes worth of links, and so we just kind of popcorn back and forth talking about uh, these articles and then trying to especially put a, an educational focus on them and think about how they apply to classrooms and schools. And sometimes we're also known to go down rabbit holes and talk about things that might just be uh, of personal interest. But we are approaching the end of the year and I'm suspecting, and we haven't talked about this, but if we can go next week, regular time, uh, whenever we are, our, our next, one of our next two shows will probably be an end of the year review. And that's kind of how the show started when we were recapping the year and then just decided that it was so much fun. We needed to keep on going. So where would you like to start tonight, Jason? Well, let's do some quick uh, Google hits, I think. There's a couple of interesting articles that might inspire some discussion. The first one is um, from Chrome Unboxed um, uh, today, December 13th, although this is a story I've been following for the last week or so. 
Um, Google is killing the web store for Mac and Windows. And what they mean by web store is that there has been a Chrome app store available for several years now that takes advantage of the Chrome architecture to be able to run apps. And by apps, I mean not, I'm not talking about extensions or plugins, nor am I talking about websites. I'm talking about actual apps. And so as an example of this, I am a regular user of four different applications on the Chrome architecture that um, work on, on Chrome OS, Chromebooks, they work on Windows machines, they work on Mac machines. And the four I was using is there's one simply called Text. It's a great generic text editor that I use mostly to do text editing on Chrome OS. There's another text editor called Carrot. It's actually, I think, intended for programmers and coders, but also um, offers some additional features that the text editor did not. Um, the third I was using was Plex, which is a media server client that had a Chrome app that I utilized across architectures. And then also one called System that allowed me to see system statistics, like what kind of CPU and what kind of memory is in a machine. I would use that across Macs, Windows, and, and Chrome OS devices. And I am very much a multi-platform person and was very disappointed to find out that that app store, first of all, it's already gone. You can't go to the app store anymore and download apps. The apps are still available and they will install if you sync your apps across different devices, which means if you go to a fresh install of the Chrome browser, for example, and sign in with your Chrome account, um, it will download the apps that are synced to your account, but it seems like for right now, um, it's dead. And what's interesting about that is that I think, um, Google believes that web apps are, are still the way to go and that more and more applications will be able to be seen through browser windows that maybe don't have the uh, address bar at the top. And in fact, I've noticed in the last two or three versions of Chrome OS that once in a while it will ask me if I want to put, like, for example, Instagram, install it as a web-based app in the icon tray at the bottom of Chrome OS, and then I'm able to access it like I would any other app without the address bar on top. And then, of course, Chrome OS devices also allow you to install Android apps as the newest pieces. But I thought this was an interesting development. And um, it says to me that, that Chrome is going back to the notion, or Google is going back to the notion, that you can do anything on the Internet and don't necessarily need a web app platform to install programs as we see programs. So first, Wes, I guess I'd start with, are you using any Chrome apps regularly? Oh, uh, you know what? Sometimes the Chrome extension, Chrome app, Chrome add-on kind of all get, you know, uh, mashed together with for me. And, and the answer is no, I don't think so. Um, there is a oh gosh, and I'm gonna low. There's a there's like a mail merge app that I've used for certificates and for you know doing things with Google Sheets and Docs and and uh, slides before. And I'm the name of that is eluding me, but no, not not a whole lot. The thing this article makes me think about is that idea about apps versus web. Um, the article yeah talks about the support in general of the open web and and kind of how that. At, at some point, you know, we've had different pundits say, well, app stores are not going to be the big thing. It's the open web. But, you know, it, it appears that that app stores are thriving, that that model of software delivery is really what is being adopted, not only by mobile device 
uh, manufacturers and, and folks that are creating, you know, operating systems for, for mobile devices, but also, you know, on the, on the regular laptop platform, um, the ability to containerize, I guess the, I don't think that's the right word, but you know, software so that it's not just things that you're just downloading, you know, openly, but you have the ability to have things that have been vetted to some level and approved and, you know, from a security standpoint, we've, we've seen that. So I don't know. Do you have advice for, let's say, computer science teachers out there? You know, should kids be learning Swift Playgrounds and, and thinking about uh, what App Inventor is on the Android side that's free from MIT? Um, or or is uh, the open web, you know, more the place where where development and and that kind of thing should be focused today? Or, or do we know? Is that still just like an open-ended question? Well, I think for me that the part of the, the answer to that question is that, you know, I can get everything done on, on the open Internet. But interestingly enough, some of the most functional tools end up developing applications anyways, because I think that there's a perception, correct or not, that that's where people are, right? That, that, that the app world is where people want to be able to, to be functional. And I have a couple of stories in my mind. The first one is that um, you, I, I, I would need to look back to find out when this happened. But for the longest time, Facebook, the application was using HTML5 technology across all versions of its application. So the Android app and the iOS app was essentially the same thing. It just had a different wrapper on top of it to go in either the Play Store or um, the App Store. And what's interesting to that is that they felt as though it was limiting them in the way that they were um, accessing users on those mobile platforms because they felt as though they couldn't take advantage of the hardware advantages and software advantages of being on either the Android or iOS platform. And so they moved towards distinct apps that are programmed um, uh, towards the device that they exist on. And I feel like that the experience on both Android and iOS is richer, which tells me that if you are using HTML5 technologies on the web, that it may not be able to access some of the hardware or utilize some of the features of hardware platforms in, in a very advanced way. So that's the first thing I, I think of because of that. And the second one is that um, I have one particular image. Like I, I'm pretty okay on Photoshop. I'm um, decent on InDesign. I'm becoming increasingly effective on Illustrator um, as I work on some marketing projects with um, side projects, plus stuff I do as part of my day job. But most of the design work I do is in an app called Canva, uh, www.canva.com, which is a beautiful, really easy-to-use, quick design maker, right? It's templatized. You can uh, use as many of the templates as you want. And in fact, I, I like it so much that I actually utilize it, um, uh, the pro version of that software. I pay 10 bucks a month to get access to the, to the advanced version of that, of which I don't even use any of the stuff that makes the advanced version. I just want to donate to a piece of software that had become such part of my workflow. Well, they have an Android app now, which by the way, is installable on my Android compatible Chromebooks. And it's it's a really interesting thing to me because I feel like that the app experience is slightly more enhanced, even though I can do amazing things in the web-based version. So I don't know. I don't think you know, the web is obviously quite awesome and has a very, um, uh, you know, it's becoming more and more functional every day as web technologies advance. But it seems like there's always going to be a place there for the app. Yes. Well, I will I will comment that this last weekend as I'm continuing on my Android experiment um was a, not not entirely sure if this will will be forever um but it is for now. 
uh, I had some trouble with Facebook uploading video as well as photos. And as I Googled, um, I, you know, found folks saying, yeah, it, it sucks, you know, do some cache resets and things. The Android app is, is really not as great. Actually, that the website sometimes with, for Facebook can be more reliable than the, um, you know, the, the app. So, uh, differences there between the apps and while, I think the dream would be, you know, all apps are created equal with platforms and things like that. Um, you know, the reality is that there are affordances to platforms and app developers understandably, you know, take advantage of them. And there are, you know, different apps that are just iOS only. One of my favorites uh, remains Adobe Spark uh, Post. Uh, there's a series of different Adobe Spark apps. There's video there's post and there's page. Uh, when I was in Egypt a couple weeks ago, one of the workshops that I was able to share was how to create info pics. And I had asked the person who was kind of coordinating uh, the presenters to, you know, test and make sure that it wasn't blocked on, you know, some national firewall or whatever. Really powerful to be able to take uh, take a, an image, uh, get text. And one of the cool things about that app is it actually analyzes the image and so suggests a color scheme that you can use with the text that you put on that's going to be complementary and you can, you know, vary and change it. Um, I've played with a couple different Android apps. It's coming to Android. But with with several different creative apps like that, we have seen them eventually come. I'm thinking of Book Creator, which eventually came to Android, and now it's actually to Chrome, so there is a web-based way to do Book Creator. Still haven't seen the, the Doink green screen app that is just, you know, phenomenal on iOS uh, come to, to Android um, and, you know, iMovie trailers are, are definitely whenever somebody says, why, you know, why in the world would I need to create on an iOS device? You know, I usually point them to green screen or to to iMovie and the iMovie trailer specifically to say, hey, you're not you're not doing this on an Android device. But that being said, you know, it's still a robust platform. And um, I think that we do. I think we want to include in digital citizenship education and just digital literacy education in general with students an importance of the open web, of open standards, that probably is a, could be a segue to our net neutrality articles, which we're going to probably talk about a little bit tonight, because, you know, a huge part of why the Internet is powerful and wonderful is because it is not proprietary. Um, I don't know that I dropped this article in, but there was something I was reading in the last week about how much blundering and false starts there were as the um, ISPs, the telcos, the uh, cell you know, providers, tried to get an app store going and tried to, you know, figure out how they can bundle, et cetera. And it really wasn't until, you know, Apple famously created their app store, which Apple, had written, you know, Steve Jobs didn't originally have that in mind. He thought Apple designers would create everything. And it kind of was almost an afterthought that the app store happened and exploded. And the fact that that's divorced from uh, a particular um ISP and, and provider, you know, is a huge part of creativity. So I'd love to see, I know Apple releases numbers on the millions of dollars that they pay out to developers. I don't know how much of a, of a gold rush there is today for app development, but, you know, judging by how many folks appear to be going to WWDC every, right. you know, June for Apple and then Google's IO event in the spring, um, you know, it's, 
it it is a wild west and i and i think it's it's so invigorating and exciting to think about the ways in which creativity is applied and continues to be applied to solve problems and to come up with novel ways maybe to do things we've done before but maybe to do things you know that we haven't done before and so i think there's some real important advocacy here that we need to include in a digital literacy curriculum uh, just like i think creative commons and letting students know about the open licensing and the value of utilizing those kinds of materials for remixing legally but also perhaps contributing to that body of creative commons work i think we similarly need to be advocating for the open web and you know hopefully encouraging students to be passionate defenders of the open web, because if we don't have that defense, you know, then we could end up in some proprietary dystopia, but I don't actually think that's going to happen. Proprietary dystopia. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, man, this show gets awesome. Um, we just need uh, like some official tinfoil hats. Um, the, the one other thing I want to mention, let me mention one other article here, because there was a fascinating statistic in here. Um, this is from Android Headlines on December 7, 2017, Chrome OS fighting to keep control of the U.S. education market. And it's not a secret that Chrome is dominating uh, educational purchases K-12 right now, but I don't see a lot of statistics in this. And this provided some excellent statistics from Future Source. And basically, it's not only is Chrome OS increasing in its market share based on the first three quarters of 2017, um, it has more than any other provider of mobile PC platforms combined in K-12 education. And in second place is Microsoft at 20. Oh, so Chrome OS is 59, almost 60% of the market now. Microsoft is 22%. Uh, Mac OS is a 4.7%, but if you combine that with the 12.3% of iOS, which I would, it's nearing closer to um, 17% of the market. And um, that's really interesting to me for a variety of reasons. Chromebook continue to dominate uh, K-12 uh, institutional sales, and at some point in the future, we're going to talk uh, Chrome OS in a whole episode and, and maybe to justify its implementation in K-12 schools. That's very interesting to me. But the other numbers that are also appear here is that outside of the United States, Chrome OS is not making even as a dent in the overall PC sales. Microsoft dominates um, over or outside of the country PC sales. And there's also one category there that's basically of no factor in the United States um, in Quarter three, Q3 2017, Android as an operating system was nearly 15% of sales in outside of the U.S. Uh, mobile devices. I'm assuming some of those are tablets, but I also know there's a lot of, of Android laptops. I'm not talking about Chrome OS, uh, uh, Chromebooks that, that are, are popular. I'm talking about Android laptops. Ever since Android was released, um, nearly, what, 12 years ago now, no, maybe just 10 years ago, there's been a, a, a an effort on people to kind of shoehorn Android's operating system on other types of devices, including laptops. And I've utilized some, um, native is probably the wrong word, but native Android um, laptops that were super low end, but had in really, really, really low specs, but were 
fairly functional because of the Android operating system. And so very interesting to me that that's the case. And I'm also surprised that that Microsoft, I'm, I'm, I'm not as surprised that maybe that iOS is going down because I still think that they struggle with management in the K-12 arena, a better at least a perception they struggle on management. I am surprised that Microsoft hasn't at least caught up a little bit because I felt like that they have been more innovative in the K-12 space. <laughs> Let me jump in as you uh, possibly mute your mic and get, get some water. The thing that uh, surprises me about that uh, is really the rest of the world and the dominance of Windows, right? Uh, because, you know, 2016, 64.5%. And actually, that's an increase up to uh, quarter three of 2017, up to 66.5 percent. Um, I'll do a little commentary that when I was in Egypt, um, you know, I, I I didn't really know what we'd be stepping into as far as the the computing situation. Um, all of the computers that I saw at the American University in Cairo were Windows based. Yep. Really, didn't see Macs. There evidently are some Chromebooks running around, but not a lot of iPads. And so uh, that that's a that's a glaring like wow in terms of of the dominance of Windows in in the rest of the world. So it'll it's and the, and the fact that it increased right. I mean, Windows market share um, you know went down, but now it's 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 higher. So is that I don't know what that's a reflection of if it's Microsoft's uh, you know getting getting better with. Uh, you know what it's what it's doing in other parts of the world, or anyway, that that's a that that would be a great analytical um, graph to uh, have have your students dissect and attempt to explain. You know what what are ha- what's happening with these dynamics, and wouldn't that also be a great thing to animate? Right? I don't know if right. we've seen many animated graphs, but that'd be a super cool thing to you know be able to have some sliders and be able to you know take a look at at how this you know changes quarter to quarter. Okay, where to next? Well, I would like to go uh, down to a subtitle uh, where we put surveillance. We've got a couple articles here, and uh, these uh, sub subtitles or whatever don't really make it into the uh, show notes, but you can find those, of course, on edtechsr.com. This is an article from Wired Magazine on December 11th, and it's how email open tracking quietly took over the web. And we've talked quite a bit on the show about surveillance. Uh, the Note to Self podcast, shout out to Manoush, has been a very you know positive influence on both Jason and I becoming more aware of the kinds of things that are happening with Facebook and with the ways we you know like things. And you know I'm going into Walgreens now and really not that this is changing the world, right? But I'm aware that when they want my phone number and they want to you know maybe give me a 50 cent quarter discount on something or not. I mean, it's, it's all about connecting the dots with our personal information with really this extremely large body of data out there that is, that it's opaque to us, right? We can't see it. We can't access it in the same way. Anyway, this article is talking about how email tracking allows anybody who uses it, not just marketers, to get a heck of a lot of information. And according to the article, I think this may just be on the Android, not the iOS platform. You know, in some cases, even if you have location tracking, location services turned off for your device, that in like the case of Facebook with some of the things that you click on, there's other apps like shadow things that are running in the background. And so basically when you open an email, um, if you don't have 
uh, things like Google supports now where, you know, images are turned off. You'll have these pixels that are in your email that not only let the sender know, oh, yeah, Wes or Jason opened the email. It also sends your IP address, which can be relatively accurate as far as where you are, but it tells them when. And so it said in terms of like stalking people and they we haven't according to the article, seen a headline like this, like, you know, my house was robbed because uh, I was stalked via tracking email. But somebody who wants to target an individual can get a very accurate picture of where they are, when they read their email in the morning, you know, where they go during their day. I, and again, this is something that's very opaque to people. And so I thought it was interesting in the article how it says these advertisers are kind of walking a thin line here, especially as our awareness because of the Russian election hacking. And we'll talk probably a little more about a great frontline special called Putin's Revenge that goes into all this. America, the United States, is more aware today, I would argue, um, you know, than we were a year ago about the potential for social media to, you know, of course, influence politics and influence elections, but in, in the way that information that's gathered can really be targeted narrowly and that, that that can happen in advertising and it can happen in politics. What we, um, you know, are, are interestingly seeing is where they would like to tout this this capability for folks that will buy their services, thinking of MailChimp or, you know, constant contact with these others, like, hey, you're going to be able to gather all this information. But on, but on the other hand, or the other side of their mouth, they're kind of, they would kind of say, oh, but it, you know, privacy, we respect that. And, and they kind of don't want to overblow the surveillance side of email tracking. So, uh, I don't know. What do you think, Jason? Are you, do you turn on or off the, the images in Gmail? And have, is this something you've, you know, kind of, been attuned to? Do you think it's something that we should care about? Uh, what are what are your your thoughts about email tracking? And you know, does it bother you at all that this stuff gets gets gathered about us and aggregated and and used in different ways? Well, I, it bothers me in that I, you know any any tracking is is troublesome, right? But it's super obvious to me that my my web presence tracks me, right? I mean, if I need any other evidence of that, it's that I shop for camping gear on Amazon, and suddenly all the Amazon ads on Facebook are about camping gear, and then suddenly other ads from other companies are about camping too. So obviously there's something going on. And the part of it that that I think is a little troublesome to me is there's a lot of hand-wringing going on right now about Alexa, about Google Home, about Microsoft Cortana and what it's doing and where it's keeping information, where it's tracking. And yes, it does ramp things up quite a bit when there's a microphone involved, but there's a microphone involved on our cell phone. There's a micro microphone involved on our laptop. Like if they're doing something like Alexa, there's definitely the possibility to do something nefarious with your laptop or your cell phone too. I think part of it is, is that we need to be cognizant of the fact that we are constantly being tracked for the purpose of uh, of marketing to us. And we need to decide, I think, broadly if we're comfortable and comfortable, I think, that, that it's part that makes the Internet go round. The free and open web is partially are willing to do things like to track us in order to, that we are buying things to support the websites that we know and love, but um, you know, I I, I don't know about it, right? Like, I don't know 
how we don't know how we get rid of it. I think it's so ingrained into the internet into how we engage with online tools that that the the, the train may be already out of the station there, and there's nothing for us to do. Um, that said, you know, there's our hands about uh, Alexa, right? Is as aggressive, and it has been for 20 years, tracking you and keeping track. Of, of, of things when you open. And as a marketer myself, I use marketing tools in context of both my day job and in advertising. I do a bit on social media advertising. You can do some shockingly amazing things to track people. Um, the Google, uh, I'm sorry, the Facebook pixel you can put in on your website. And because people, most people are logged into Facebook all the time, in the background sites you go to, it can help build marketing pictures for you, which you can then use to aim advertising to. So I know how powerful it is. Constant Contact is my email provider at work, and it puts in an opening pixel, whether or not you open an email so it can track who received what email. And people are surprised sometimes that that's the case, but, you know, that's your email. That's the, the, the part of the email that is is maybe you just don't talk about anymore. Jason, I don't know. It may be my bandwidth or it may be yours. I adjusted mine down a little bit. Um, I'm seeing you a little bit fuzzy, but it could also – my daughter's taking a final right now. Um, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. Bandwidth-wise, I told her, keep taking the final. It's okay. Um, <laughs> statistics from um, this article says that a full, according to OMC's data, a full 19% of all conversational email today is tracked. That's one in five emails you get from your friends and you probably never noticed. And so, you know, it's just, it's saying this is the Wild West. And I, I think it's a side of surveillance and the capability and capacity of these technology tools, you know, to surveil us and to provide data. And at some point, I mean, there, it's a continuum. There's that's cool and awesome to that's creepy and I don't like it with I don't really care, you know, in the middle. And probably a lot of this is in the I don't care. And I'm not sure how much of this we need to try and get people to care about. But it certainly is uh, important to to recognize you know, what's happening to privacy and what's happening to um, yeah. one of the one of the other articles that you've got. I think it was one of the maybe the first ones um, about Google. It was it was it was comparing, you know, regulation. Well, it was a net neutrality. We haven't gotten into it yet. But anyway, Europe versus the United States and talking about, you know, what kind of regulatory environment, you know, is appropriate and should we try to to advocate for. So it's it's weird how, you know, our data has been and continues to be monetized in incredibly profitable ways. And I'm not saying that companies shouldn't be profiting and we shouldn't have a, you know, a capitalist focused economy. I'm not saying that, but you know, these are pretty important changes that are happening. I mean, when 20%, when when you think of how email continues to be a common denominator, we've talked about this on the show, you know, the amount of email, Jason, that you process and, Maybe after offline last week, we were talking about there's a lot of hours your staff and you're going to be working as a lot of the university folks are, are you know, away and, and online education and online school is kind of a, of a different animal. Email is hugely important. So um, I think that, it, you know, we need to we need to watch for the tools and also see what the companies are going to say. You know, Apple has talked about trying to, you know, be the defenders of privacy and differentiate themselves in that way from you know, cloud dominant providers of, of email like, like Google or, 
you know, Amazon as far as all the information they gather for us. So I don't know. I, I think the the jury is out on this, but this was definitely an aspect of surveillance and data gathering about us personally that I I really hadn't thought deeply about, and I and I think it's probably you know, something to keep our eye on. And I'd love for, for anybody who, who has any feedback, shout out to Peggy George, um, who's in our chat room live. And, uh, you know, Peggy says it doesn't, doesn't seem like you can do much, even if it bothers you. It's just a reality. If you have an online life, I don't know though. I mean, it depends on what browser you use, right? There's a, there's a, there's a Firefox browser now for, for privacy. I think your geek of the week may, may reference anonymity online. I mean, there are things that we can do, but most consumers are probably not going to in terms of taking steps to, you know, perhaps limit that. So, um, well, and let's, let's be really, really clear about something, right? Like if you, like, even if you go to the most private secure browser on earth and anonymize yourself, you will continue to be tracked. If you log into a Microsoft, Facebook, Google, or any variety of account, right? And that's part of the reality of the modern web in regards to the platforms and services that dominate the larger field right now. And so, you know, it's, it's a question of, of, of kind of balancing rewards, right? For me, um, you know, Google, I'm sure tracks me very aggressively, but I feel like that I, I get a lot out of Google, right? I get a lot out of the tool sets, even the, the tracking component to me. When I go to do a Google search, it's not just providing me something based on a logarithm. They're actually providing me something based on my own searching habits, which means that I'm more likely to get something that I'm looking for. And Gmail is amazing and so much better than email pre-Gmail. And Google Docs uh, is now, you know, my... Uh, word processor of choice for 95% of all the work I do and it's free and very functional. So I know it's, it's all part of that balance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where would you like to go to next? We can take the net neutrality uh, road or we could, uh, you know, do some more surveillance articles there. Um, let's go ahead and, and do net neutrality first. Um, I'm assuming Wes that tomorrow you will queue up the live, airing of the vote from the FCC related to net neutrality. Have your popcorn, maybe grab some Vegas odds on how that's going to work. Will you be watching the vote live tomorrow? You know what? I think Congress actually needs to act. I think I mentioned this on the show before, but it was really the Obama administration working through executive fiat that put our current net neutrality environment in place. I definitely support having net neutrality as something that's on the books and not just a, hey, guys, be nice, you know, in your business and and respect net neutrality. Uh, But no, I mean, I'm going to be interested in it, but not. I I, I really think that Congress needs to act. Of course, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, uh, disillusioned with with Congress's ability to do anything constructive at this point, so I don't think that's going to going to happen. But um, yeah, I guess I'm just hoping we can survive in the next three three more years. Right, we're just kind of hanging on to see what other kinds of dastardly proposals the folks can come up with. Are you going to watch it live? Um, I will likely not watch it live tomorrow, but I do think that one of the things that's been very sobering about this discussion is that there is an overwhelming view that's not like Friday the Internet is going to start to suck, right? Like this is a broad philosophical set of regulations and laws of which didn't exist before just a few years ago. We managed just fine without that. I don't think we're going to lose the free and open Internet right away. I do think we need to be 
very vigilant, though, about our internet service providers. And if some of them start introducing things that seem like they're a really good idea, um, that, that are, you know, consumer friendly, be sure to call them out when they're not, or, you know, start demanding things of, of their competitors. And, you know, if your internet's not doing the job it should, and you have multiple providers available, walk, right? Take advantage of competition where it exists. I am disappointed that I live in an area where there's really only two viable providers. There's theoretically a third and a fourth in Missoula, Montana, but they're both very low bandwidth in comparison to the DSL and cable options available here. But really, that's my two options. It's cable or it's DSL. And the cable provider, um, I don't know anyone that likes them, but it's the fastest internet in town, and I get consistently 60 megabits down, just no no slouch of an internet uh, uh, speed. Um, I did very briefly become a DSL customer as well when I was living in graduate student housing here, and um, it went out every 10 days or so. And when I call and complain, um, the, they would send a technician right out and they pull apart this wiring mess that looked like it was something out of a 1950s NASA documentary. And they would tell me that this really needs to be updated and that they're sorry it keeps getting. But literally what they would do is cut someone else's service to, to hook up new service because they didn't have any wiring schematics to let them know which uh, wires were live or not. And they would apologize profusely and then they'd say, you know, this really needs to be updated to more modern technology. And I would ask when that's going to happen. The technician would laugh. And that's, you know, that that's where we need to be, uh, you know, way, way more proactive in demanding better service. It's net neutrality is a protection for us. But I think that the questions of uh, uh, service, particularly in, in not super urban areas like Missoula, Montana, um, mean that we have to be more savvy consumers. Well, net neutrality is a really uneven road right now, especially when you compare residential broadband access and cellular, right? Because we have data caps uh, on most cellular plans today, and even those that tout unlimited, you know, actually degrade to a slower band once you reach a certain level, and there there isn't really a truly unlimited. Um, Peggy and I uh, were talking here in the chat room as far as data caps, and I mentioned that we're she is on Cox, and we are as well. We have data caps, but they've never been enforced. It's really an ex- it's an incredibly high number. So I think it's to to really you know try and curb people that are doing lots and lots of file sharing, especially probably with video and, and things like that. But as this is the holidays, I'll point out that in the last year or two, um, I have looked at those graphs of how much internet consumption we're doing over the holidays, and we have approached our data cap you know, in December as we, you know, stay home for, for a couple of weeks and there's a lot more Netflix and, uh, you know, other video plex and, and video like that, uh, that is streaming. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that the world is going to, uh, come to a halt on online, you know, based on this vote. Um, the article, uh, that you uh, referenced from Polygon, December 13, 2017, concerns grow among YouTubers, Twitch personalities as net neutrality vote looms. That's the article that talks a little bit about, you know, comparing regulatory regimes in Europe versus the United States. And we've seen Europe, you know, take a more aggressive regulatory approach. And I think, frankly, our tech companies are are fearful that we're going to have a more restrictive regulatory regime in the United States. And so... You know, there's a lot of sides to this, and it's not like, you know, net, we have this perfect net neutrality today in, in, in all cases. But it's going to 
it's going to continue to be a really important thing to fight for. It, it, it ties in with the open web and, you know, the concepts of, of and principles on which the Internet was founded. Um, and I, I hope that, you know, we're going to have our legislators, you know, take some action. And because you don't want, frankly, the, the, the administration du jour, uh, with that, that held the White House to be able to say, well, hey, let's flip flop, you know, back and forth. I mean, you really want the Congress to pass some laws and, and to do some things that are much more binding than what a, uh, non-elected board or, you know, an appointed official decides is, is important. But I mean, because we're talking, you know, this gets into how lobbyists, you know, influence and who who drives policy because we're we're talking about things that have sizable impacts on, um, you know, lots of companies and lots of bottom lines in terms of the the billions of dollars. There's still a big race going on for the living room, right, and for who's going to control that and set top boxes and whether the Comcast and the the Cox, you know, communications and the other companies are going to be able to to dominate that or we're going to be able to have a more open and, and competitive environment. Um, and so, yeah, some, definitely something to watch and something for us to, to be vigilant about and to continue advocating for, because this is probably a foregone situation that, that the vote is going to be negative for net, net neutrality. Yep. Okay, where to next, sir? Uh, oh, this is a quick one. Uh, this is The Verge on December 12th. Storify is shutting down and will delete all posts next May. One of my favorite tools to use following a conference like the, the Edge Forum in Egypt or some, sometime when I have a, a quantity of posts is to go to Storify and be able to search for that hashtag or, or just, you know, grab the, the most recent however many tweets have, have been about that topic and then create basically an embeddable widget that has all of those posts. And, it, you know, I have in my own learning and sharing at conference events kind of migrated from blogging being the main thing with a little bit of podcasting to where social media and being able to share, you know, during the event, making connections to people, it's been important. So Sorify now goes on the graveyard or gravestone list of uh, Web 2.0 tools. I reached out to Tony Vincent last night when I saw this and tweeted it, and he's got this whole, you know, slideshow to, oh, remember, you know, Dropio and Google Reader and Posturus, you know, we can... And it is kind of sad. You're like, oh, I remember those tools. And what you don't want is to lose data, right? So if you've got things that, you know, have been have been saved. So Storify will allow users to download an HTML version of your stories, and then you can host them yourselves. And I don't know if it's going to be possible to, to put it on something like Dropbox or Google Drive. I kind of doubt it because I think it's going to be an HTML fi- file that um, – you know, you're going to have to, you know, put on a hosting site somewhere. Um, but anyway, at least they're they're giving some notice. And again, sign of the times, you're going to have, you know, uh, tools come and go. And and they're like many other tools, they're monetizing themselves. So they're they're part of another group called yeah, they're part of Lightfire, which is a part of Adobe. Yeah, so you can pay for a commercial version, but no more, yep. no more free version. So, Jason, what what dead Web two O tool do you miss the most, or or are you good? And have you found suitable <laughs> replacements that you you no longer mourn the death of uh, of web tools? Um, I you I, I've forgotten about most of the tools I cried about. Um, you know, long long past digital relationships that I had, but the the one that I, I still bemoan a little bit because there's never been as simplistic of a tool is, is Google Reader. So I, I think RSS was a brilliant way to keep track of a lot of different websites. And 
you know, Twitter's okay now, and there's Nuzzle, which, you know, uses tweets to create news, and um, I guess the... Um, the Flipboard is kind of an RSS reader, too, and that's good enough. And I follow, you know, several dozen, you know, broad topics that, you know, when I when I do my Sunday morning coffee with an iPad that, that I can do. But Google Reader is the one probably I miss the most. But um, it's, it's definitely, you know, the other piece of this here is that um, Silicon Valley companies that are looking to build great tools aren't necessarily keeping your classroom in mind. They monetize. They have to, you know... Uh, pay money to keep up servers, to continue to develop tools, and oftentimes their goal is to get purchased by someone else that may or may not want to use that technology in the way that you were using it in the classroom. So, um, and, and Wes, uh, in fact, I it, it almost feels like that once you create an amazing workflow, they come after a piece of it and take it away. I keep thinking about what he used to do with Posterous, but um, you know, the bottom line is that, sorry, but it's, you know, you weren't paying for it. So, um, and even if you were, oftentimes that money isn't enough to keep those, you know, amazing tools afloat. Yeah. And if it is awesome enough that everybody needs to use it, <clears throat> that kind of functionality often does get subsumed by some of yeah. these bigger players, you know, and that's the network effects that's happening, right? The big getting bigger, Walmart gets bigger, Amazon, you know, Apple, Microsoft, uh uh, these companies that are <clears throat> that are huge. So just uh, we don't have it in the show notes, but it, in the last uh, couple of days we've heard that Apple is buying Spotify or no, not sorry, not Spotify, buying Shazam. Shazam is the technology that allows you to listen to a song, you know, listen, have your phone listen to it for a little bit, and then tells you what that song is. And some of the the uh, pundits that I've been listening to are saying, you know, that's probably more about data than even the technology because Apple's really interested to know what kinds of songs are trending, what kinds of, um, of, of songs could, could they sell you <clears throat> currently. I think they do a split with uh, Shazam as, as far as like on the iOS device, you can buy it in the app store, you know, or you can link to Spotify, et cetera. So again, it's back to data and, and collecting data and what we're going to do. So um I still have an app that I that I I should talk to you about offline, and we should see it. It has to do with YouTube, and <clears throat> you know, kids are in a shared uh, device environment, being able to upload to a common channel. Um, yeah, there's there are uh, you know we're we're the beneficiaries of of much of this free 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 tools and free platforms that are happening, <clears throat> but ultimately, you know, electricity is driving this, and and somebody's got to pay the bills. And if there's not a yep. not a way to pay the bills, then those those things are not going to live on. Okay, let's um, should we talk a little bit about intelligent personal assistants. Do that. So um, I, I I don't think I've mentioned this in, in a while, but um, I am a, an Alexa and a Google Home user. And in fact, um, I just said her name. Sorry, because she's looking at me now like, hey, what did you want? This is um, a, this is a I think I heard somebody call or Queen. Yes. A or yes. Like the, the divine Miss A is uh, uh, although my wife's name is Allison, but um, the uh, the platform is now in, in multiple places in my house because I did pick up a dirt cheap. Um, uh, Amazon Echo Dot, which is the tiny Echo, and I hooked it up to a Bluetooth speaker that that is part of a light bulb in my my uh, my bathroom. I am a shocking nerd for for those of you at home. What, what do you think about having them both? Because I don't. You're the only person I know, I think, who's invested in both platforms. At this both point. platforms. Um, you know, to be frank, it's interesting because I'm obviously the nerd of the house, but my wife isn't in, in in the house. We have an exchange student, um, and the three of us actually go back and forth 
pretty adeptly knowing which this what the strengths are of the two platforms. Um, I think we prefer to play music on the Amazon Echo because it's frankly a better speaker. It's a big, um, it's it's a big beefy speaker, which means if we want a little dinnertime music, that's the best place to do so. But you know, the power of Google um, with the Amazon Assistant allows us to to you know, fact check dinner basically, right? Where we'll talk about you know who the the 19th president was, or um, uh, uh, and I think I mentioned this before, but our exchange student is Swedish, and although his English is impeccable, um, we need to check Swedish phrases occasionally if there's unique American words that that uh, may or may not have a Swedish uh, equivalency to. He wants to check that to know for sure. And, and he is an iPhone user, so theoretically he could use Siri, but we find ourselves using um, Google, uh, the Google Home as, as a piece to do that. And then, of course, I probably now have seven or eight Internet of Things devices that are hooked up to the both the, the Alexa and the Google Now. We also do shopping lists via Google Home. And then I'm starting to go through my house now and set up everything on smart switches that doesn't need to be on all the time. So as an example of this, I have two power strips in my office. I'm never in my office um, I'm usually uh, I'm now more of a laptop guy. I think I only am there in case I need big monitors to do something. But um, I had those things on a power strip, um, and they were asleep most of the time. I didn't keep them on 24-7, but they draw quite a bit of power. Well, now I have them on smart switches, Wemo smart, switch, smart switches. So after I turn them on, they go off with you know in three hours. And I have all the things that don't need to stay on, like a computer, right? You don't want to go off in three hours, but everything else is on that smart switch, so it goes off after three hours. So does that cut the vampire power to it as well? It does, yep. Interesting. Except for the actual switch itself, right? Yeah, Which, right. Um, you know, uh, uh, it needs to power up so it can go back on again. And then I also picked up a an Enfi is the brand name. I think it's Anchor's um, home uh, device brand name, and it actually has uh, monitoring capability to it. So I've been putting that on different switches and looking at based on I downloaded what the current price of power was. Um, to my home in Montana, and I'm able to estimate now, like, how much individual devices are costing, and that's part of the reason why I went, went around my house and um, started putting smart switches on to turn things off because I could then track the amount of power that was going through that. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, I'll give you an example of this. Um, today, um, I put a smart switch on a, a little laptop workstation I have that I've been working on my dissertation that has a big monitor to it. Uh, that I plug a Chromebook into a docking station, and um, between the, the the power of the monitor, it's sleeping, and then the Chromebook itself, which is on on a charger, um, it was using um, an average of 0.71 uh, kilowatt hours, which um, is da, 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 about four cents a day, and I was able to cut that down to one cent a day by automatically turning it off after it, after two hours. And so it, it's easy for me to go to press the button and turn it back on again. And so that's, you know, a, a, a 75% savings in the power that I'm using. And so um, I mentioned that not because it has anything to do with this particular article, but because um, I, you know, privacy concerns set aside, I think these devices are pretty cool. And I think that there is something to the smart home beyond the novelty of being able to turn something on and off of their voice. But the the article that I'm referring to, uh, Google has kind of decided on like a little Christmas gift for Android users. This is according to 9to5 Google today. Google's going to start rolling out 
the Google Assistant, which is the software that backs the Google Home to Android phones going back to Android 5.0. That's a four-year-old operating system at this point. And I think it's extraordinary good news that even older Android phones are going to have access to that Google Assistant. And in fact, what's cool to me about that is that it's functionally what the Google Home is. That was my question is, do you get a better assistant when you have a Google Home? Like, because on my Android, I've, I've got Google Assistant. Is this the same assistant that you have on the Google Home it's just that you have a better speaker to go with her? I believe it's the case, and, and, I, and I'll demonstrate that now to show you. So I have a, um, I have, this is an Android phone that has Google Assistant on it, and um, I'm going to go ahead and turn it on now. So I know it's the Google Assistant because it's got the right screen, which won't show up very well here. It just asked me how it can help, and I'm going to say, and of course it recorded all that, cancel. Turn on the entertainment center. You got it. Turning on the entertainment center. Please unlink and relink yours. So that's pretty cool that it's on, you know, this device as much as it would be with my Google Home. Can and you tell it where to throw a video at this point? Because that was some, some function they're working on, right, where I can say, uh, take this YouTube video and show it on the living room TV or whatever, like on a Chromecast. Is that I can. Work? And if I have, I only have one Chromecast in my home. Um, and so only, I'm sorry, I only have one video Chromecast in my home uh, hooked up to a television. But I think it only works on, like, I think Netflix is an example of it. There, it there's APIs it's hooked into. But the fact that this device now has effectively become you know, a Google Home without having to have the actual hardware, I think it's pretty impressive. I would also say, too, something that's very interesting, that Cortana, and I haven't tested this one as much, but not Cortana. Oh, well, actually, Cortana exists on Android, too, and it works just like Cortana does. And then the the, the, the Miss A itself has an app that you can also apparently um, do similar things to. So I've been kind of working with those as, as kind of different kinds of alternatives. But it is very cool. Cool that you know the um, uh, intelligent personal assistants are becoming you know software platforms that you just install on will on your phone. So Peggy uh, asked in the chat, I don't use Google Assistant. What am I missing? I replied, Google Assistant is much better and more capable than Siri. Do you think that's accurate? I think it's very accurate, and in fact, that's I believe the article actually talks about that the the nine to five Google article, but. You know, I, I don't feel like, well, I feel like that Apple has lost the, the, the home game because of that. I know they have, you know, hardware platforms coming out that have Siri on them, but I don't ever see anyone using Siri, to be honest. And um, the other thing, too, is that I do see people using talking to their Google phones because there seems to be more function there, whether that's perceptual on my part or not. We're approaching the top of the hour. I'd like to mention two things quick, and if you want to do another article before Geeks of the Week, uh, in the same section under Intelligent Personal Assistance, really more because it has to do with AI and machine learning, um, a, a week or so ago I applied for the beta preview of this uh, Amazon Transcribe, which will let you take any MP3, MP4 file that you have hosted in the Amazon S3 cloud and then create what is supposed to be a very accurate transcription. I still haven't heard from them, so I, I filled it out again but when i logged into my amazon console and and this is something that totally absolutely should be in every computer literacy digital literacy curriculum in every school 
students should understand the wide capacity for anybody to set up a cloud account with Amazon and Google and other companies, but especially Amazon, and this incredible array of tools that you can pay for, in many cases incrementally, you know, just as you use them or as your application or your business scales. And so I, I only know what Amazon Transcribe is, but there's Amazon SageMaker, Comprehend, Deep Lens, Lex, Learning, Poly, Recognition, and Translate. And these are all under the category of machine learning inside the Amazon um, you know, console that you get when you when you sign in. So I basically only use what's called S3, and that is to have buckets for hosting files. So that's where our podcast audio and video lives when you click the download link or you play it on the website. Um, my hosting service uh, is, is Site5, and it's separate. And I won't tell the long history, but basically at one point I was using a hosting provider that didn't let me have podcasts on their site. I had to have them somewhere else, so I moved everything over to Amazon. So I just wanted to mention that because my mind was a little bit like, what? Look at what, are, what are all these things? Look at how machine learning is you know, accessible today to any developer or person who wants to have an account. But the other thing I want to uh, do a shout-out to is, and if I didn't just lose my complete train of thought, uh, this under R Russian election hack. Uh, Jason, have you seen the frontline PBS special called Putin's Revenge? I have not, although it looks fascinating. Yes, they've re-aired it because of what's happening with um, uh, Mueller and the you know additional indictments that we've seen in the Russia investigation in the United States. And what it what that that frontline special, which I think you can view online free. I have the uh, Apple TV PBS app, and uh, you can see for, you know frontlines is free there. You don't have to pay for that. Um, you know, it really shows how what an information. Um, you know, a, a military info op, this whole thing with the election was, and the seeds of Putin's hate for for Hillary Clinton and what happened in the Ukraine, going back to the Soji Olympics and the embarrassment of the Ukraine and how he really felt like, you know, U.S., who knows what we were doing at the point, but, you know, covert operators had to do with, with this insurgency and, and revolution that was happening in the Ukraine. Anyway, definitely recommend that, as well as an article by The Guardian from December 2nd called Fake News and Botnets, How Russia Weaponized the Web. And as we've talked about before, the whole idea of anonymity, which I think we're going to hear a little bit about in, during Geeks of the Week, is important. And um, it says the digital attack that brought Estonia to a standstill 10 years ago was the first shot in a cyber war that's been raging between Moscow and the West ever since. And... I don't think the majority of people recognize how incredibly hostile the computing environment today is with regard to, you know, botnets and hacks and and the ways in which people want to, you know, get your accounts and, and get your devices and be able to put them to use, whether they are to, you know, be part of a, of a massive distributed denial of service attack. Um, I think next week we'll probably talk. There's a, a Mirai botnet article I, I just saw that came out that had to do with, you know, the background of that. That was the, the largest denial of service attack we've ever seen before. And that's just uh, a taste of what is to come. And so this was uh, this is a very good article and I think just can help raise our awareness of what has happened in the political spectrum, not just in Estonia or in a, a land far, far away, but, you know, right here in the United States. 
and the kinds of things that we need to be doing to address this because we're hopefully going to remain a relatively free and open society where, for instance, we can set up, you know, uh, anonymous Twitter accounts or, or other websites and things like that. <clears throat> and so I, I, I definitely commend to everybody that frontline special as well as that article. Excellent. Um, let me take a look here. By the way, I'm so excited about Amazon Transcribe. Like the, there are so many great services that are getting close, but don't seem to be there and all the media around that look um, pretty sweet. And I think that's a kind of headed in, in the absolute right direction. Um, in regards to the Russian hack stuff, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, the, I'm a Facebook advertiser. I work with some nonprofits that are Facebook advertising. Um, I can easily see how you could set up a workshop to aim ads at all sorts of very specific people and get great actionable data back about how to make it more narrow. The fact that, um, um, the fact that R Russia weaponized it is not a surprise. I'm actually doing some research uh, right now on Catalonia independence um, and Russia's involvement in that. Um, you know, it's if you build tools where people can can be targeted and connect with one another at a very high level, it's going to introduce factors into the process that you know, are, are going to introduce unintended consequences. And um, Wes, you say this all the time, and you're absolutely right every time you do. This is why we need to have savvy amongst students about what they're getting into when they engage in these tools. It's not a no. It's a no, right? It's not a no, N-O. It's a no, K-N-O-W, right? And so, um, you know, whatever we can do in schools to have these conversations, like I, I, I can't help but to think as a former social studies teacher, what I'd be doing in government classes right now, um, in regards to both source verification, fake news, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, you, you have to understand savvy. And so I just, I love that juxtaposition, right? Here we are talking about Amazon Translate, which is just this incredibly powerful tool that I think is going to be got you very much a well, game changer. Trans, 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 transcribe. That'll be transcribe. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, what did I call it? Translate. There is there is Amazon Translate oh, too, right. which Sorry. actually will be a game changer as well. They're both going yeah, right. to change the game, but yeah. Um, and, well, and as someone that that works with accessibility and media, right, that would love an automated process that creates those, those um, transcriptions is awesome. But I just keep thinking about that juxtaposition, right? Like, don't don't mistake our giddiness of the power that these tools bring. Um, for not being savvy about how we administer them and how we connect them with one another, right? And I, and I, and I think that's something we do a fairly decent job here on the podcast of making clear. But, you know, the savvy is the key part here, right? Like you have the power as teachers to help your students understand this, even if you don't fully understand them yourself, which is totally understandable, because these are complex issues, right? And they come really quickly, and the world has changed in a very fast pace that we've never seen before in human history. So, you know, keeping a slightly cynical eye, I think, is is important here. So, absolutely, my daughter just got a ninety-four percent on her online government test that she took. Woohoo! That's the end of her semester. So that's, that's excellent phrase. All right. Well, shall we? Uh, shall we geek of the week it? Sure. Um, I'll run a quick one here, and the only reason why I wanted to mention this one is because of how great 
the, the story isn't Wired, but um, Wired on December 9th has released a, um, a I guess, a, a tutorial, maybe a little deeper than that, um, about the Tor browser. And we've mentioned Tor here a couple of times before, but Tor is a, um, a, a service that runs kind of on top of the Internet that basically allows you to send in requests like the web. They get blended up into kind of a slurry of web, web requests and then return information back to you, having been gathered by uh, dozens, hundreds, or thousands of other Tor nodes around the world. So it's basically impossible to track you once you're on the Tor network. And what I mean track is I mean track you by IP address. There's lots of other ways you can get tracked if you decide to, you know, go into your Google account in the Tor browser. But the bottom line is, is that it adds in a substantial amount of privacy that, um, you know, can create a, a pretty amazing um, way to access information with, with zero tracking involved. And, um, you know, there's, there's implications to that. Um, the Tor is, is related to, although not the same as the dark web, you can access things via Tor that are not part of the grander internet. The dark web has an extraordinary network of both illegal sales, uh, venues along with places that, that, you know, you don't really want to visit. The darkest, uh, scariest, uh, forests of, of the internet are, uh, available via Tor. But if you're interested in the concept or if you've heard about, uh, the, the Tor browser and want more information, and of course this cat doesn't really want to be pet, she just wants to cry, um, then that Wired article is an extraordinarily good introduction to the concept. And, um, you know, if you want to play around with it, you can do so. Awesome. And my Geek of the Week actually comes from a rabbit hole that I uh, jumped in this week, but it was a delightful. Uh, somehow I ended up thinking about Dropio uh, because that was a pretty cool tool that you could set up. It's one of those Web 2.0 graveyard um, gravestones uh, because you didn't have to have an account and people could all you know put content in there if you had a, a presentation or a workshop and so I looked at the the <clears throat> Wikipedia article for Dropio saw that one of the co-founders is a fellow named Sam Lesson who is uh, Lesson L-E-S-S-I-N on Twitter and as I generally do before I decide to follow somebody I always I always look actually at their tweets and if people are cussing I don't follow them uh, but then I always just see what their profile is and he says Founder at Fin Exploration. Okay, so here's the guy who developed Dropio. I wonder what Fin Exploration is. This is freaking amazing. Now, Jason, you and I, I don't know, may not be able to afford it because you have to spend uh, basically two hours of money, which it's like, I think it's $60 an hour. But this takes personal assistance to the next level. Um, the service is called Fin, which in Spanish means the end, F-I-N, like shark fin. But it, um, they, their video goes through all these different things that you can have them do. Ask anything. Finn, I want to see more of Justin. Each month, can you find time for us to get dinner somewhere cool and new in the mission? Or, hey, I just moved to a new apartment at da-da-da. Can you find and call the appropriate places to get me set up for Internet, electricity, gas, and water? So they're using a combination of technology and AI, but also human beings that you give access to your calendar and to your mail and to different parts of your life, but then you can phenomenally offload things to them 
And so some people have actually dropped an actual full-time or even part-time human assistant, and they're using this service, Finn, as their personal assistant. This is really, really cool. And so uh, that just kind of blew my mind, and it's not something I'm signing up for tomorrow because I don't think I can afford it. But uh, if anybody out there has used Finn or, you know, wants to – give us any insights into, uh, you know, if it is as amazing as it, as it looks, it, it seems to be a game changer, especially for, you know, busy folks. And they just kind of in the same way that having probably an Amazon Alexa or Google home, Jason challenges you to think about, well, what can I do with this and get it to, you know, help me automate or streamline in my own life, life hacks and workflow. This would take it to a whole other level because human beings are in the mix. And so things that you couldn't give to a digital assistant, you can totally give to this assistant. And wow. Well, and it reminds me so much of the virtual, um, not virtual assistants, the, the folks that people were hiring in countries with different different wage levels. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Uh, Maybe these birds. Am- Amazon. What's what's that called? Uh, oh, Tor- 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 yeah, right. And you know, and I actually consider that um, for a moment to kind of help me run some of my small business stuff because I get a lot of like little email traffic that's annoying to answer, and I could never, well, I could never rectify both trusting someone enough to do that in a service. But the second piece of it was it felt like it was taking advantage a little bit in a way I was not particularly comfortable with. But um, yeah, and I think that 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 that's really interesting that notion of using a mix of uh, kind of automated and human to do that and that over time you're probably gathering enough tasks that even when a human's involved it becomes a more automated process but that's cool and um, you know a dollar a minute or at, at $60 an hour although you're just billed by the minute so that I guess there's some advantage to that I could see lots of scenarios where that actually wouldn't be that that much of a uh, that much of a payment in light of what, what appears the functionality to be that's pretty sweet yeah all right. Well, thanks everybody for for tuning in. Jason, where does every? Well, I'll just I'll say, and then you could go where you can find uh, find me at W Fryer on Twitter and Speed of Creativity online. I've been writing a few more blog posts, and since the holidays will will begin, I <clears throat> really need to work on some writing projects. But I will probably be doing a few more posts, and we'll. Look forward to, you know, catching up on some reading and really looking forward to just having our family together and and relaxing. So let let the vacation begin as of Friday afternoon this week. Excellent. Well, my name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Crypto Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is um, on Twitter, actually, at MontDigCAD. And I'm also the tech-savvy administrator residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, where I blog at blogncc.org, and I'm getting excited for our conference in February, February 14th, to 16th in Seattle, Washington, where Dan Rather will keynote, and we're bringing in lots of great speakers, and you could see me um, present on interesting bits of information where I will also be debuting um, early research results for my dissertation on intelligent personal assistance, so that will be pretty interesting. Um, you can find me on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, and um, here on Wednesday nights. Um, this party here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where Wes and I like to talk about uh, technology, youth, and educational focus. Uh, we are here at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, uh, 2 a.m. UTC, which and I think I got wrong again, 6 a.m. UTC, uh, something like that. Uh, download middle, of the night, middle of the night if you're in Europe, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure people are clamoring to stay up in the middle of the night to hear us live. But if you'd like to hear us live, we do have a chat room, and Peggy, our chat room moderator, would love to talk to you um, and 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 talk in the background and post questions to Wes and I. Or you can always download the podcast after the fact wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which includes the podcast store on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play music has the EdTech Situation Room, and you can also ask Google to play. Or Pocket Casts, which I think, are you still a Pocket Cast user? I am a Pocket Cast user, and we are also featured on the podcast, uh, the podcast directory in Pocket Cast. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, we hope to see you next week on the EdTech Situation Room, and until then, good morning, good day, good evening, and we hope to see you again soon. Adios.